0: (laughs) But uh, I I am excited as we continue our series If you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 And I know it may seem a little bit redundant to read it But we're going to, as you turn there, if you'll stand We're going to read the passage again that Liam started on last week I want to keep this in the forefront of our minds Isaiah chapter 9, starting at verse 1, says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles." The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and, on the go- and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. For then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You may be seated. Yes, amen. As we, as we think about these things and as we approach our celebrations on Christmas these take, a, I think, a much more important place, or they ought to take a more important place in our lives. Um, I just want to also just mention that this is a usual, not unusual, this is a departure from what we normally do. So if you're here visiting and you say, okay, we're, it's a topical series, we normally teach through a book of the Bible, and we're not the only church that does it, so don't think you're special. <laughs> um, uh, but it is, a, it is a distinctive of one of the things that we emphasize here. So normally, we would pick a book of the Bible, and we would teach through it that verse by verse. But there are times and seasons where we understand that a sermon series or a topical message is really important because we need to hear those words. And this again, this year, we, we made the decision to focus on the names of Jesus as it relates to this Christmas season. Again, I believe it was really important for us at this time. And again, last week, Liam taught from this passage, and the focal point was on how Jesus would be known as the wonderful counselor. And Liam began by asking the question, what makes Jesus the better or best counselor? The short answer is that he is God, and therefore he knows all things And every word that he speaks are the very words of God. And then he asked, well, what does he do with all this knowledge and counsel? Everything he does, it is to display his glory, and it is all meant for our good, for the good of his children. And then he counsels us with grace, with with a truly empathetic heart, with kindness and wisdom, which then is the final question, how does he counsel us? And there are three things that Liam brought out. There will be up on your screen. And he says he gives us his spirit. His spirit is our counselor and also the comforter, which we desperately need in this world, yes? A counselor that you can count on all the time to never leave you, lead you astray. We need that. He gives us his word, his written counsel. Again, trustworthy. doesn't matter if you have an NIV, ESV, NASB, King James, New King James, pick one. You know, someone once said, which which translation of the Bible is a good one? And Pastor Doug used to say, a red one, not in color, the one you actually read, (laughs) right? The one that you're actually going to read is a good one. Now, I mean, there's some exceptions to that, but um, because there are some some crazy attempts. Um, but we have the counsel of His Word, and we can open it anytime we want. It, as Liam brought out last week, it has everything pertaining to life and godliness. How much is everything? Well, it covers everything. There is no room that it does not cover. Now, it might not address those things very specifically, but it will address everything in principle that as we read the words, we can understand the principle that we need to know about every piece and portion of life. And then he gives us each other. We are each other's counsel. As as it was asked, am I my brother's keeper? And the short answer is, well, that was kind of (laughs) weak. Am I my brother's keeper? Absolutely. We have a responsibility. If you see your brother in sin or sister in sin, what are you supposed to do? Hey, good luck with that. Have fun. I know it's wrecking your life. No, we are to go to them, plead with them. We are each other's counselors. And as Liam said, we all need that in our lives. And he encouraged, exhorted us to seek out someone more mature than ourselves, a godly person, that we might have in our lives that would speak life and truth even when we don't want to hear it, (laughs) amen? So we have his spirit, we have his word, and we have each other. Therefore, as the one who knows all things and the very words of God, he is able to impart to us the knowledge of God and the proper application of that knowledge, which is wisdom. And as followers then of Jesus, we become the conduit of the Lord's wisdom to each other and to this world. That is literally what we are purchased for. Jesus is the wonderful, and that word wonderful also means supernatural counselor. This morning, we're going to take a look at the second part of that, which is Jesus is mighty God. What does the name mighty God mean? Together these two words um, refer to a singular person, a person whom all the Jews knew to be the Messiah, a son of David. Let's read again verse six, it says, "'For a child will be born to us, "'a son will be given to us, "'and the government will rest on his shoulders, "'and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, "'Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. "'There will be no end to the increase "'of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, as Isaiah the prophet writes, and according to him, this individual must be a son born into this world, he must be fully human. Additionally, he must be a descendant of David. And according to Second Samuel 7, 16 through 17, it would be a perpetual dynasty. Here it is, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So it says there, your house and your kingdom This means there would never cease to be a descendant of David with the authority to rule the people of God. God's plan would not be thwarted. That's something, again, that Liam mentioned last week. No amount of conquering nations, dispersing the Jews throughout the world could thwart God's plan because it looked to the day of Jesus. This was God's redemptive plan. Verse six reminds us that this person would also be called Mighty God, and I, I I do tend to geek out on like science and history and all these kind of things, but I, I will spare you all the fun stuff I dove into this week. But the, the Hebrew term is El Gabor, the, uh, the name of one of the names of God, and in the Hebrew Bible, this phrase, believe it or not, only appears twice in the entirety of the Bible, only twice. And this is the first mention here. The other instance is in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21. And this is what it says, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Now, what's interesting about that passage is that it's specifically referring to Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the name by which he was given, I am who I am. Now, this significance is not lost on the early Jewish scribes and Pharisees and created a lot of trouble for them as they looked for the Messiah, their view of the Messiah. And this was clearly evident during the time of Jesus. We went last night um, with a group to um, follow the star. If you've not been to it, it's really great. It's a a live kind of reenactment of the Christmas story there in Gladstone, and they present the gospel. It's, it's, It's amazing. But that was the problem, is that the Jews were looking for a conquering Messiah, and what they were missing was the coming Messiah as a son of David, a child, yes, a king for sure, but a God in the flesh who would fulfill the law and the prophets, I agree, (laughs) the law and the prophets and would bring about restoration in the hearts and minds of men and women, that it would bring reconciliation. I'm still looking too. (laughs) And we understand that that problem is sometimes still evident for today because we sometimes want a king and a leader to be very present with us now in a different context. It's really easy for us to look to a human being, amen? To say, oh, that person's gonna solve our problems. That's gonna bring peace in the world. There is only one who will do that. And according to the scriptures, he would be fully man and yet fully God coming together. If you remember John chapter 10, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Luke 22, when Jesus declared he is the Son of God and equal with God, they understood that. Why? How do we know that? What did they say? This is blasphemy. They were going to stone him for claiming equality with God the Father. As a result, we're left with only one view of who the Messiah is, a man born of a woman, fully man, yet who is fully God. Why is this important? Because this takes us back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis, to the moment when God pronounces judgment upon the first two humans, a judgment affecting all of their descendants up to present day. And this is what it says, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel." Verse 15 is really that foreshadowing promise of redemption. It's the very first glimpse that we get of God's redemptive plan. This plan would become clearer as the Lord chose then the, the Jewish people. And then through Moses, provided the written law and a system of sacrifices to cover sin. And that is critically important for us to understand that the sacrificial system covered sin, it did not remove sin. Because even as the word says, could a blood of a lamb or a goat or a bull satisfy? No. And that's why Jesus had to come. In the law was the continued foreshadowing of Christ, the future, Perfect lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world as John would declare, John John the Baptist. Behold the lamb of God who takes away, not covers, takes away the sin of the world. It's in the person of Jesus that the word mighty God, El Gabor, take on their full meaning. God, our powerful champion, our hero. I love that imagery because it brings a lot of different things to our mind. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 says this, "'Being found in appearance as a man, "'he humbled himself by becoming obedient "'to the point of death, even death on a cross. "'For this reason also God highly exalted him "'and bestowed on him the name "'which is above every other name.'" so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and, every, and on, uh, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and at every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our Savior. And because of this, you and I can echo the words of Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That is the reality. It is still the reality today. Jesus is the Son of God, or as Matthew one twenty three says, as the women heard yesterday, Emmanuel, God with us. From the Garden of Eden until today, it was and remains to be God's desire to be with us. This was his reconciling, his restorative plan to bring us back into that right relationship, that close and intimate personal relationship. As Liam mentioned last Sunday, some people believe God spoke the world into existence, set it spinning on its axis, and then stepped away and remains uninvolved. And nothing could be further from the truth. No, what he said to Adam and Eve, what he said to Moses, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, and then from his very own lips, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you even until the very end of the age. I like this, what Matthew Henry said. He said, by the light of nature, we see God as God above us. By the light of the law, we see him as a God against us. By the light of the gospel, we see him as Emmanuel, God with us. The mighty God, our champion, our hero, stepped down from heaven and entered this world in human form, entering the physical and spiritual war on our behalf. To give you an idea what that might look like a little bit, try to remember with me back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines have gathered in the valley of Elah. They're facing one another, and there is fear in the hearts of the people of Israel, the army of Israel, and out of the army of the Philistines comes Goliath, this truly giant of a man. And he taunts not only the people of God, but God himself. And he says, like, listen, is there any man that will come out and fight me? These are his words. He says, choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Now, this whole idea of solo combat or one army to choose their valiant champion, their hero, and the other to do the same and send them into the middle of the battle and for them to fight to the death and, the, and the, the victor then would be victorious over the whole army together. But David is a foreshadowing of Christ. And in many ways, David was from this little clan within the tribe of Judah. Jesus was also from the tribe of Judah. Where was he born? In, in, this, in the middle of Jerusalem, the, the exalted city? No, in the little tiny village of Bethlehem. And then he would grow up in the no account village of Nazareth. David willingly stepped from the safety of his own life as a boy and offered his own life in the place of really his nation, his countrymen. And Jesus left the glory of heaven and offered his perfect life for our sinful lives. David was a victorious champion and king, anointed by the Lord. Jesus is the ultimate victorious champion and greater king. He is the holy and anointed one. Amen? And he leads us daily into battle now by the power of his Holy Spirit because He is already the victor. It's just yet to be unfolded. He is the mighty God who is with us at all times, now and forever. And it's for this reason, really, that verses two through six are true. So it says the people walk in darkness, they will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. And it goes on and on. And it's describing the condition of people when that, when that king, that champion, completes his work, when he arrives on the scene. This is what Jesus said in John eight twelve. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, because he is the mighty God, he is the power over darkness. Not just physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. He brings light into the most spiritually dark places where he found many of us. As he does this, his spirit illuminates the hearts and minds of those who in rebellion are living in that darkness. And his light of truth leads them out of the darkness into the light. And through salvation, he then does, as the passage says, he's multiplying the nation. This is an exciting thing. What is one of the most exciting things that can happen, right, is the church can grow by multiplication, not by addition. Let me explain. By multiplication, by us reaching out to those that do not know Christ, speaking the truth, bringing the light, his light, because he then goes on to say, you are the light of the world. And then God multiplies us. That is the most exciting thing. It says all heaven rejoices when one person repents and comes to Christ. He is multiplying the nation, his kingdom, and and he is our source of gladness, our joy as we walk now in his presence. Our joy is like those attending the wedding party mentioned by Jesus in Matthew chapter nine. But as many as received into them, he gave the right to become children of God. We get that additional benefit of not just attending a wedding, but being adopted into his family. In verse 4, Isaiah mentions the joy of those serving in battle, and he's referring to the battle of Midian there with Gideon. And you, you perhaps know that story, that God whittled them down for this pretty large army that was still greatly overnumbered to 300 little measly guys, right, uh, against many thousands more. And the whole point of that was so that God would, or the people would be able to say, only God did this. They would, could not claim that we did this by our own might and strength, but that it was by God and God's power alone. That is some serious rejoicing, And that's what he's saying. He says, like those men that saw it with their own eyes, experienced it, and then got to gather the spoils that they themselves did not earn. How's that for us? He says, we get to enjoy all of this world because he purchased it all. It belongs to him. The Lord broke the yoke of bondage and loosed the cords of oppression, and the Lord blessed them with the spoils of victory. Our treasure, the spoils of war, are to be his children, to to know his provision, the hope of heaven, to have the inheritance with Christ. This is an amazing thing. This hard, I think, I don't know that we fully comprehend it what we get in this bargain, it is completely unfair. We were talking about it this last week. God, please do not be fair with me. Because fair is a dark side, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We get a very unfair deal way, way more than we deserve. I'm glad that God is not fair with me, that he is gracious. And that he gives us the great joy of being in his presence, the gladness of joy, of walking with the king of all creation. More than that, 1 Corinthians 15, says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We have the reality of, That though we die, yet we will live. And we could say, oh, what's what's the world going to do to me then? Do me a favor. Kill me. Because I'm going to walk right into his presence. Therefore, we can be people without fear. And this is the very thing that inspired the disciples, the apostles, the apostle Paul, I mean, here's a guy that they beat him near to death and left him for dead outside of the city. He got up and went back into the city. That is some crazy boldness and confidence. And this is the same confidence that you and I have today. Sometimes we don't feel that. So what is our response to our mighty God, the one who is with us, for us, and forever now leading us in victory? Again, he says there in verses three and four, multiplying the nations, increasing gladness, gladness in your presence, the gladness of harvest. This whole idea is from Matthew 28, we are told to go and make what? Disciples, not converts, right? Disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. We are be, to be participants in spreading his presence, his light, his gladness, his provision through salvation. And as Jesus said, in him, we are the light of the world, Matthew 5.14. We have been given, as the Scripture said, the ministry of reconciliation. This is an amazing both responsibility but great joy for us that we get to share and participate in this glorious work. And how do we do this? Revelations 12.10 through 11 says this. Now I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night and they overcame him. How? Because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Last Sunday, we worshiped together and we remembered the body and the blood of Christ through communion. But we need to remember this. Our remembrance of Jesus' blood is not limited to that covenant of communion. We are able to overcome every time we draw near to Jesus, the Lord, in that quiet meditation of prayer, praise, and His Word. Because it's in those times, it's in those times that we ought to remember that our personal and powerful relationship with Jesus is only possible because he was and is our champion. It's in those quiet moments when, when the world is completely spinning out of control that we are reminded that he is our, currently our champion. That we don't have to muster up the strength We lean into him, say, Lord, how would you have me go today? That's all I got to worry about. We've been talking about it. We just have today, one day. He is the champion, the lamb whose blood takes away the sin of the world, my sin, our sin. As we seek him with all of our hearts and minds, with all of our strength, he is faithful to his word. He cannot deny himself. He is faithful to his word and we will find him waiting for us with open arms. This is what he has told us. If you seek me, you will. If you knock, I'll open the door. And what will he do when he opens the door? He'll come in, we'll have a meal with us, a fellowship with us, intimate fellowship. We'll find him there welcoming us as sons and daughters, saying to us, it's good to see you. It's good to see your face. It's good to hear your voice. Think with me back to the prophet Elijah. It was his consistent love and pursuit of the Lord that it enabled him... By the power of God, to commune with the Lord consistently, to hear from him, and then to know how to act upon those commands. And think about all the things he did, even, you know, Mount Carmel and amazing things, and then he flees because he's overcome by the world, the troubles of the world, and the dangers of his life. So he flees to the mountain. He goes into a cave and he cries out to God. Just kill me, right? It's my life is nothing. It's just me left. Just end my life. And listen, I think we can all identify at some point with this. Like there is nothing good happening. And then God says to him, wait. And there was a, an intense storm Windstorm and rocks are going everywhere. But there was no voice of God in that. There was an earthquake shaking the foundations. There, there, there was no voice of God in that. And there was a consuming fire. And there was no voice of God in that. No, it was the quietness moment that followed that he heard the voice of God. You see, God's voice is heard in the quietness of a heart fully surrendered to him. Yeah, for sure, I I would love it if God's voice would, like, pound the world, right? Just shock and awe. (laughs) And that day is coming, is it not? That day is coming. No, Jesus wants to, us to find him in the quietness of life, the strength of that. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, but when you, when you pray, when you want to know my heart, when you want to cast off all the distractions and all the, the notifications, when you want to cast off even the deception of men to be noticed by men, and that's part of the context here, He says, but when you, when you pray, go into the inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this is one of the hardest things to do. It's one of the things that Jesus demonstrated and left us as an example. How often did he go away to a quiet place? Though he was... Fully God, he was still fully man, and he left an example for us. And he often went away to a quiet, secluded place. How often do you think you and I need that? Well, to quote his own words, he says, take up your cross, how often? Daily. Because trust me, if we're going to be thinking about our cross, it's not going to be like in the middle of all the craziness of life, necessarily. No, it's going to be when we say, you know what, I am a mess. And I'm going to make a mess if I don't have your help. It's in the secret and quiet place that we find our greatest connection and comfort and answers from the Lord. Yet it is this place that we often forsake first. Why? Why? Because in the quietness of our hearts, with the presence of the Spirit, we cannot ignore the storm, the earthquake, and the fires of our own making, if we're honest, right? When it's just me and Jesus, me and the Lord, His Word, His counsel, His Spirit, it's a little difficult to avoid the obvious. However, when we set aside the distractions... And with purpose, we read his word, to hear his voice. We speak to him. We listen for his voice. Knowing he hears and answers his kids because he says he will, we will know the presence, the purpose, and the protection of our mighty God, our champion. Psalm 31 verses 19 through 20 says this, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence. From the conspiracies of man, you keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues." And the New Testament would say, you are hidden in Christ, kept safe, stored up, for a future date of glory.